It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Greg Jarrett. I'm Sandra Smith. I'm David Asman, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, April 12, 2022. I'm Chris Foster. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signs a new law allowing people in his state to carry guns in public without a permit. The naysayers are saying, oh, you know, it's going to open it up to where criminals can get guns and people that aren't supposed to have them. Look, they're already getting them now. They're stealing them. What we're trying to do is give law-abiding citizens a level playing field to simply exercise their Second Amendment rights. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. China's zero-COVID policy, a lockdown in Shanghai, Russia's war in Ukraine. The global supply chain system may struggle even worse than it had been and for a while longer. This really is not just a logistical supply chain issue for the world. This is going to once again gum up supply chains for factories and for final product sellers all over the world. And I'm Buck Sexton. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Today, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signs a bill into law making it legal for gun owners in the state to carry firearms in public without a permit. It was a bill backed by the National Rifle Association and passed by the Georgia legislature on April 1st after Republicans defeated an amendment introduced by Democrats that would have expanded federal background checks to private sales. Supporters refer to no-permit laws as constitutional carry. The Democratic Party of Georgia put out an ad calling it criminal carry, claiming it'll make Georgians less safe. A lot of gun owners, though, say they want the option of being armed for personal protection. Constitutional carry, uh, going to make it where you don't have to have a permit to conceal carry and carry in Georgia. So we're excited about that. Governor Kemp, up for re-election this year, says he's keeping a campaign promise. That is something I campaigned on back in 2018. Uh, But this year, thankfully, the General Assembly was anxious to do this bill, where in the past it's been a little bit of hesitancy from some of the members. And just appreciate the legislative leadership in Georgia for getting us across the finish line. I'm looking forward to signing it. If I counted right, you're the 25th state uh, to allow people to carry and conceal uh, a handgun in public. The change basically just takes away the licensing requirement, right? Was Was it hard to get a concealed carry permit before? Well, that's been one of the interesting things that have frustrated people through the pandemic. And there's been a lot that's changed. I mean, obviously, to me, this is not only a constitutional issue, but it's also a public safety issue. And we've seen with mayors, quite honestly, around the country that that haven't been supporting their men and women in law enforcement, haven't been going after violent crime. You know, local prosecutors that won't prosecute gang members are not going after them like they should. People are just fed up with it, and they are ready to protect themselves and not have to have a piece of paper from the government to do that. You know, our probate judges issue licenses in Georgia, and most of them do a really good job. But there's been some that that weren't open during the pandemic. Um, And then there's been others that have processed them, but it's taken well over a year, year and a half to get it, which is absolutely ridiculous. And so that was another reason that we're doing this. I had uh, emergency powers during the pandemic and kept extending the date on current license holders so they could continue to conceal carry even after the expiration date. Uh, but this will do away with that with that permit to carry in Georgia. Uh, I think a lot of people will elect to do that. Others will want to keep their carry permit for reciprocity reasons in other states. And we certainly support both of those things. Yeah, obviously, if you want to if you want to carry in another state, you've got to follow their restrictions as well. But you, you, I assume you, you expect a lot of interest. People who might want to carry a gun or have a gun in their car 
uh, in Georgia, but wouldn't bo- not so much that they'd bother with paperwork. No, absolutely. And I, I think people have been very frustrated. I mean, look at to, to get the permit, you got to get fingerprinted. You got to go down to the sheriff's office. You got to fill out the paperwork at the probate judge's office, at least in Georgia. Uh, and like I said, most of our judges do a really good job of this, but still it's, it's aggravating for, for consumers to have to do that. Uh, especially when the constitution awards us to protect and defend ourselves and our property and our, our businesses. And that's what we're doing here in Georgia and really excited about that. Uh, you guys don't require gun registration like some other states or a, or a permit to, to buy a gun. You guys do participate though in the federal background check system. Uh, you're okay with that. You're okay with, do you think background check works to prevent crime? The background, I mean, look, we're going to follow the, the law in, in Georgia uh, and I, I think the process for background checks is much better than it, than it first started. Um, so, you know, we're supportive of that. Uh, but we're also supportive of letting Georgians protect themselves. And that's exactly what we're doing here. The naysayers are saying, oh, you know, it's going to open it up to where criminals can get and get, done, get guns and people that aren't supposed to have them. Look, they're already getting them now. They're stealing them. What we're trying to do is give law-abiding citizens a level playing field to simply exercise their Second Amendment rights. Yeah, well, one of the things the naysayers say, as far as criminals getting guns, is the Atlanta PD reports something like 2,000 gun thefts from cars last year. It seems like a lot of people are driving around with handguns in Georgia, A. And B, what do you say about that criticism? Is it just on owners to secure your stuff? Well, definitely. I mean, look, I do as a gun owner and somebody that carries. I mean, you, you just, especially when you're in a place like Atlanta, when you had politicians that were not doing enough about violent crime, thankfully we are. Uh, we're giving citizens more opportunity to be able to carry and protect themselves. But we also just celebrated the one year anniversary of a crime suppression unit that I put together. We've taken uh, we've arrested f- over 400 people that had outstanding warrants, 26 of them for murder because the Georgia State Patrol, the Georgia Bureau of Investigations and a lot of other folks working with local partners. We're chasing and going after violent criminals and street racers in the city of Atlanta. And we're doing this in other cities around the state to send a message that, look, we're not going to continue to put up with these car break ins. You know, it's ridiculous when a parent can't let their child go pump gas or go to the mall. And that's what started to happen in cities all across the country. And we're doing something about it in Georgia. And we're also pushing the local politicians to join us in that fight, which thankfully they now are. And this is all stuff you can run on. Uh, you've got a primary election coming up in six weeks. Uh, I imagine there are advantages and disadvantages to run to campaigning as an incumbent, right? I mean, probably more pros than cons. You've got built-in visibility. You've had the time to point to the accomplishments that you're bringing up now. But you're also doing, busy actually doing the job, and opponents have a record to run against you if they want to. Well, if somebody wants to run against my record, I'm telling them, bring it on. Uh, you know, we've got a conservative record, uh, but it's also a record that will reach out to the, the, the broad uh, general election policy. Because, look, I wake up every single day making sure that Stacey Abrams is not going to become our governor or our next president. And I'm not taking the primary lightly, uh, but I've been a conservative governor and I've done exactly what I told people what I would do when I ran. Uh, constitutional carry was one of the issues that I campaigned on. Uh, we've cut taxes three different times now in the state of Georgia. Uh, Georgia is the number one state in the country for business. Uh, we're a state that values life. You know, I stood up and got the heartbeat bill passed and uh, fought back when Hollywood tried to boycott us. I did the same thing when I passed the strongest elections integrity act in the country after some of the mechanical issues that we saw in 2020 and stood up to Major League Baseball, even when they took away the all-star game. 
But thankfully, the Braves won the World Series, and I'm planning on winning this election. Well, condolences on losing Freddie Freeman. Uh, I hope you like uh, your new your new first baseman medals to the hometown boy, and uh, maybe uh, maybe he'll step in just as well. Uh, Governor, you've been consistently and solidly uh, up in the polls. Polls aren't everything, of course. They can be wrong. Uh, your leading con- uh, opponent is Senator David, former Senator David Perdue. I guess you'd rather be up than down, though, right? Well, look, it's great to be where we are, but we're not resting on our laurels, and the ultimate poll is going to be on May 24th, Election Day. So Marty and the girls and I are out grinding every single day to make sure that we win this primary because I have the best record to beat Stacey Abrams in November. The yeah. polling also shows that as well and and people are scared to death of her she would be right up there uh running our state like joe biden's running the country and that's not what we need in our state our state's doing great we've been resilient we've remained open during the pandemic and we have fought through a lot and uh we want to keep it the best state in the country to live work and raise a family and i believe it is now and that's what my goal is every single day yeah if, if things stay true to course it's going to be a rematch between you and and Stacey Abrams again in November. As far as I know, she doesn't have anybody running against her right on the Democratic side. Oh, yeah. No, she's getting a free pass. Look, she's the darling of the left. She's got Hollywood, New York, and every other woke, cancel culture person and group, uh, third-party groups, dark shadow groups, money groups coming into the state. And that's why we need Republicans and, and people that are worried about having safe communities and a good economy and having their kids back in the classroom. You know, she she criticized me when we opened our economy here, first state in the country to do that. She criticized me when we, when we were one of the first states to get our kids back in the classroom. You saw left-leaning governors around the country that were closing our churches, and we never did. And as long as I'm governor, we won't ever do that. And, uh, you know, the other side's talking about defunding the police and we're standing up for our men and women in law enforcement and doing something about keeping our communities safe. That's what this election is about. And I have a strong record on all those issues, whether you're a primary voter or a general election voter. Your neighbor to the south, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, another Republican, he's running for re-election too. He says that if Stacey Abrams wins, there'll be a cold war between your states. I guess it's better than a shooting war. Uh, now, if you win and Governor DeSantis loses... You're going to be on friendly terms with Charlie Crist or Nikki Freed? Well, let me just tell you this. I'm looking forward to Governor DeSantis and I serving in our second terms together. We had a great relationship. We've got two great states. There's a lot going on down here in the south and the southeast, and we're both working hard to keep it that way. And that's that's what I'm focused on. One more, Governor. You came from construction before you went into politics. Um, You still in tune with that world? How's business these days? How are things coming out of the pandemic? Oh, man, we are having record economic success in Georgia. I'm still a small business owner. My partner runs our stone business. We're laying trucks and jobs every single day. We're dealing with supply chain issues like everybody else and labor issues, but we're fighting through that and we're blessed. But we have the lowest unemployment rate in the history of the state, the most people ever working in our state. We just surpassed in the third quarter of this year uh, the record numbers that we had on projects that we worked in the Department of Economic Development and the governor's office last year. So we're doing better this year than we were in a record year last year. And that was during the middle of a pandemic. So we're doing great. We're not resting on our laurels. We're creating good opportunity for people here in Georgia and for our citizens. And that's what we're gonna continue to do. But make no mistake, if Stacey Abrams was your governor, she'd be running this country like Joe Biden or running this state like Joe Biden's running this country. And all that would be reversed almost immediately because we've seen what's been undone in a little over a year in our country. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp running for re-election. 
uh, in a primary primary campaign coming up in May, uh, signing a new bill allowing Georgians to carry and conceal a handgun in public without a permit. Governor Kemp, good to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. God bless. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. This is Buck Sexton with your Fox News commentary coming up. The latest consumer price index data is due out today. The last time we got data, it had been gathered before Russia's war in Ukraine, and we still saw year-over-year inflation up nearly 8%. There are some reports predicting an even worse figure today, some due to Russia's war, but some due to China's zero-COVID policy, their efforts to get to no-COVID. Shanghai's been put through a recent lockdown, and that is expected to badly impact supply chain issues moving forward. Gordon Chang, who's lived and worked in China and Hong Kong, told Fox business. It's not just Shanghai. And we saw, for instance, in Shenzhen, major home to ports. Um, we see it in factories across China. They can't get workers. Sometimes they are locked down. This is something which is, I think, highlights an important point in the sense that uh, China has no defense to this disease other than isolation. President Biden has talked about the supply chain woes quite a bit. At a State of the Union, he mentioned, as he has since, the companies that jack up prices or engage in certain anti-competitive behaviors as part of a solution in his mind. See what's happening with ocean carriers and moving goods in and out of America. During the pandemic, about half a dozen or less foreign-owned companies raised prices by as much as 1,000 percent and made record profits. Tonight, I'm announcing a crackdown on those companies overcharging American businesses and consumers. Last week, the president talked about his efforts to ease supply chain issues by reducing regulations on the trucking industry. Trucking moves about 70 percent, about 70 percent of all the goods in this country. 70 percent. And truck drivers are facing real challenges. The average driver waits four and a half hours for their truck to be loaded and unloaded during an 11-hour shift. He's also proposed something the White House calls Freight Logistics Optimization Works, a digital information exchange with 18 different participants in the supply chain meant to speed up the movement of goods. But is it enough, especially as this lockdown in Shanghai is anticipated to make the supply chain issues even worse than they had been? This is a big development for global supply chains. John Bussey is the Wall Street Journal's associate editor. The port is still open and the port's the world's biggest container port operating now at 40 percent of capacity because the port may be open, but all of the supply chain coming into the port, trucks and people and workers, all of that is stuck in this shutdown. And it's not just Shanghai, but it's in other areas of China, too, that form one large supply chain, not just for China, but for the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a reason we call China the world's factory floor. It is, if not the final product maker, it's the component maker. So you've got Tesla, you've got Apple, you've got ThyssenKrupp out of Germany. You've got myriad manufacturers in China as well as outside China affected by the fact that workers can't get to work because they're locked up at home under order of the government to stay off the streets and stay out of their offices. 
Interesting that you pronounce it Shanghai. Um, I guess you lived there, so you know. Um, I don't know what to make of some of these videos I'm seeing on Twitter. Some are from reputable persons, so we can believe some of these videos. But it really does look like some folks there are, are pushing back and maybe, for lack of a better word, like freaking out over this lockdown and a lack of food. And I'm, I'm wondering what could civil unrest in a place like Shanghai mean for the supply chain if there's, you know, if it goes beyond just a lockdown and people start protesting in a, in a certain way or reacting in a certain way to the food issue there. Yeah, I think the point you're making is a hugely important one, and it, not just for the supply chain, but for the status of the party, if not the stability of the party. Right now, it doesn't look as if what you rightly call freaking out on social media, people can't get food, they can't get their medical supplies, they can't see their parents, they've been separated from their kids in some cases. So there is this you know, freak out on Weibo, the Twitter equivalent in China. So some of that is just the frustration of being locked down and gets addressed by food deliveries and by medicine deliveries. But the party is really under strain. It is now faced with its biggest COVID outbreak of the pandemic. And the numbers that you see, Jessica, I, you know, I would really, it's a huge grain of salt. I lived in Hong Kong. I was in back and forth to China uh, frequently from 2002 to 2005, and that encompassed the period of SARS. And China denied that there was cases of SARS in China and then very belatedly set up a 8,000 person hospital. Well, it just turned the National Exhibition and Convention Center in Shanghai into a 50,000 bed temporary hospital, which gives you an indication of how serious the problem is getting in China and how they're preparing for it. This really is not just a logistical supply chain issue for the world. This is going to once again gum up supply chains for factories and for final product sellers all over the world. And it's going to increase inflation, right? Demand stays high in the West. Supply gets crimped even further. Inflation prices go up and inflation goes up. But the party has to be looking at this and saying, this is a challenge to central authority in China. The social compact that the Communist Party has made with the people of China is, look, we'll make your life better every year. You'll have better career opportunities, better job prospects, whether you're in a village or if you're in a city. But the deal is you leave the politics to us. Well, when social order isn't orderly, when people are locked up and they can't get food, that social compact comes under severe strain. There's this really unsettling article from Wired at the end of last month. It said that on top of what's going on in Shanghai and China's zero COVID policy, there's Ukraine. And goods going from China to Europe on trains now have to go by sea um, rather than through Russia that supply lines of like nickel, aluminum, wheat can't move in the same way. And they quoted a professor of supply chain issues saying, you know, there's one black swan event, but these are a few black swan events combined. And it's really a catastrophe globally. As bad as we've all been talking about supply chain issues being, how much worse do they get? And, and can we quantify it at this stage? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm not sure we can right now. And back on the zero COVID notion in China, I mean, China was trying to do with zero COVID was keep COVID from spreading. And so they had very severe processes for that. Lockdowns, constant testing of entire cities, vaccination programs. You've got to credit the Chinese for trying to 
achieve zero COVID. You didn't see that in the West very much. We had a tremendously unorganized, catastrophic response to COVID in the United States. Same thing in Europe. You have widespread outbreaks. You have a lot of deaths. We don't know what the caseload is in China, but you know, you could make an argument that they may have tried to do the right thing with trying to suppress the virus. But to your point, I think that this has a cascading effect. You have one manufacturer of electronic components in a neighborhood outside of China proved to be a choke point for global production of a myriad of electronics goods. Well, multiply that by hundreds and thousands of suppliers in China and in Southeast Asia. Hong Kong is having problems, parts of Southeast Asia. Korea just went through a huge surge. When you have that kind of disruption in a global manufacturing system that's really designed for just in time, you and I place the order for the car, it gets emailed out to a whole bunch of different manufacturing centers. Those manufacturing centers send components to the car plant in Ohio. The car gets built and we pick it up two weeks from now. Well, wait for that to turn into two months, if not six months. And your point about Russia and Ukraine, remember, not only are the trains having to go around the war zones, things having to go by ship, but Russia and Ukraine themselves are massive production centers for global consumption, in this case, commodities. 30% of global wheat exports coming from Russia and Ukraine, 25% of global fertilizer exports used for all sorts of products. Watch that play out into food inflation in the coming weeks and months. John, we keep hearing from the administration, really, that a big part of this has been how high demand has been, that as the pandemic sort of waned, at least for us, that people started buying things again, and that's been contributing to supply chain issues and inflationary issues. Do we have any evidence that demand for things has lessened due to inflation and maybe 5% mortgage interest rates, like in in a weird way, because inflation is so high and because interest rates are up, could that actually tamp things down and make the supply chain issues not as dramatic? Yes, it could. If the economy slows um, because of the reasons you're describing, look, you know, Omicron probably, you know, crimped a fair amount of consumption in months over the winter. And you saw consumption come down a little bit in the United States in February. And you have rising interest rates on the part of the Fed. As a result, borrowing costs are higher, as you point out. Mortgage rates are higher now, but still pretty low, you know, historically. And you know, cost more to buy a car if you were going to finance it. On the other hand, 5.7% economic growth last year, 2.8 expected, you know, roughly for this full year, though. There, too, there are some people saying that's too positive. You might even see a recession this year. And if the consumer begins to tuck in, then you might see some of the stress released on the global supply chain. It's been driven by the fact we are in a very robust period of economic growth in the United States. And as a result of that, demand is high. You and I, are, everybody is buying things online and going into stores again. And that puts stress because demand being so high and supply being crimped because of these problems around the world, prices go up. 
Finally, John, no one administration necessarily caused these issues, but you can react in different ways. I want to ask you how the president has handled things. He's made some antitrust related allegations against like oil companies and ocean shippers. Last week, he said that 2021 is a great year for trucking. And yet the American Trucking Association said they were 80,000 drivers short. And I know he's he's efforting, you know, to change things so drivers can be licensed to drive across state lines at a younger age. Are these kinds of moves really helpful or is this much bigger than trucking and shaming corporations over price increases? Uh, you know, it's a global problem at this point because of global integration resulted in supply chains being integrated. And as a result, something that happens in Ukraine and something happens in Russia and in Shanghai affects, you know, prices in Cincinnati. And it, well, look, Biden was trying to relieve some of the supply chain issues by jawboning. You know, you often do that, try to encourage the economy in one direction or the other, but it tends to move as the consumer does. I mean, the effort to get, for example, the ports of you know Los Angeles and Long Beach to operate right. 24 hours, right? So that, that there was, well, you know, that's a great idea. And that would relieve some pressure on the ports, but try to get enough truck drivers to be pulling up to those ports to take right. the goods to the next step. That's a whole nother issue. You can't find truck drivers because there's a labor shortage in pretty much every sector of the United States right now because the economy is so strong. And you've had a lot of people leave the labor force, retire from it. John Bussey of The Wall Street Journal, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to Tyrus and Tim. Every week, Fox Nation host Tyrus and Fox News contributor Kat Tim give their hot takes, explore weird headlines, and share amusing stories. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Fox Sexton. What's on your mind? America's border security is about to go from terrible to the worst it has ever been. And while Border Patrol's daily illegal alien apprehensions are already very high, the Biden regime is about to blow the hinges off the doors for a wide open border with catastrophic consequences for American sovereignty and rule of law. With the White House's recently announced decision to end Title 42 authority, a Centers for Disease Control and Prevention regulation that allowed a portion of illegal migrants to be expelled from U.S. soil during the pandemic, the ongoing flood of illegal migrants is about to turn into a tsunami. This will also cause a surge in the criminal trafficking of opioids across the southern border at a time when the U.S. is already suffering over 100,000 overdose deaths a year. In just more than a month's time, DHS officials are estimating there could be up to 18,000 illegal migrants apprehended at the southern border every day. Based on migrant flows already gathered or underway, there could be close to a million illegal migrant border crossings within six weeks of Title 42 ending. If the surge of illegal migration is even close to this level, it will completely overwhelm the system. Border Patrol will be stretched beyond the breaking point. Every aspect of immigration enforcement at America's border with Mexico will be in a frenzied triage mode. And it appears that is exactly the Biden plan. Biden's administration simply does not want to stop the flow of illegal migrants. In fact, the left wing of the Democrat Party is staunchly in favor of illegal migrants entering the country at will. Biden came into office calling for a 100-day moratorium on all deportations. Over the past year, interior enforcement of immigration laws has been almost entirely turned off 
part of the systematic abuse of executive branch prosecutorial discretion. President Biden chose to end the Remain in Mexico policy of his predecessor, President Trump, which had proven effective in reestablishing control of the border from illegal migrants rampant abuse of American asylum laws. The Democrat base simply wants the status quo to continue in the hopes that soon a massive amnesty will create millions of new Democrat voters. But the American people are still, by strong majority, opposed to illegal immigration, which means the Biden administration will be focused on optics control at the southern border. They won't stop the illegal migrant flow. They will try to hide it with plenty of help from their allies in the media. The Biden White House isn't worried about the constant mockery that they make of our immigration laws. They choose that. What concerns them is the possibility of another 15,000 person convoy, perhaps many of them at once, camping out at our southern border and demanding entry into the U.S. Democrats are heading into what will likely be a disastrous midterm election, and illegal immigration is consistently a top-level concern in national polling. So the Biden Democrat plan is going to be making the entry of illegals into the U.S. as seamless and invisible as possible. Once Title 42 is gone and the expected avalanche of illegal migrants begins next month, they will deploy additional DHS resources and assorted bureaucrats not to protect American sovereignty at the border, but to aid in its systematic violation. An overwhelmed Border Patrol will be forced to use alternative to detention processes to bring in and then set free anyone who enters illegally and does not pose an immediate security risk. Most illegals will be told on a version of the honor system to show up once on U.S. soil and enter themselves into the immigration system. Biden and the Democrats may not believe in our own national borders, but most Americans still do. The lawlessness is only going to get worse unless the Democrats are made to fear an electoral annihilation this November. That reckoning must emerge or our southern border will disappear. This is Buck Sexton. Please check out the Buck Sexton Show podcast and follow me on Twitter at Buck Sexton. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Getting Schooled is a podcast hosted by Fox Nation's Abby Hornacek. Each week, Abby and her expert guests tackle topics we take for granted and help explain the roots and meanings behind them. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America is listening to Fox News. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.